Hello, Whiskey Files, and welcome to another episode of Pot Still Radio. As always, I'm your host, Matt Heady, Chief Editor of PotStill.com, your independent Irish whiskey resource where we distill and analyze all the news and releases in the market today. This episode is brought to you by our sponsors, the Irish Whiskey Magazine, the only magazine in the world dedicated to sharing the exciting news, lifestyle, and spirit of Irish whiskey. You can find out more at irishwhiskeymagazine.com. And the Tour Glass, a contemporary nosing and tasting glass, a symbol to unify Irish whiskey drinkers across the world. And you can find out more about this beautiful glass at tourglass.ie. Hello, Whiskey Files. Welcome to another episode of Pot Stilled Radio. As always, I'm your host, Matt Healy, and I am delighted to be joined by a very special guest today in a very unusual place. I would love to introduce you to Louise McGuan, founder of JJ Corey Irish Whiskey. Welcome to the show, Louise. Thanks, Matt. Uh, do you want to tell uh, anyone listening where we're uh, recording our episode today? Yeah, so I think we are on the 20th floor of uh, a hotel in Tokyo, and we are overlooking a car park. Uh, we're a, on a, a lovely looking car park. Beautiful. Uh, as car <laughs> parks go, very, you know, very well laid out. And we are here on the third leg of the Board Bia uh, Meet the Suppliers event. We've just hit Singapore, South Korea, and now we're in Tokyo. And today we're going to be meeting lots of importers, distributors, and potential new customers for Irish whiskey and craft spirits and beers uh, here in Tokyo. Absolutely amazing. And I'm delighted that this is the first overseas recording of Pot Stilled Radio. So I suppose, Louise, for those listening in that, that don't know you and don't know uh, JJ Corey, hit me, with the, hit me with the top line. What is JJ Corey Irish whiskey? Okay, so we are Ireland's first modern Irish whiskey bonder. Uh, and effectively what that means is that we've brought back an element of the Irish whiskey industry that had previously previously been lost. Uh, whiskey bonding was once a very vital part of the Irish whiskey industry. It uh, allowed for distilleries to sell their unbranded wares essentially to bonders who would then um, either mature and brand and package and sell or mature blend uh, brand package and sell that whiskey to consumers and there were two kinds of bonders in Ireland throughout history in the 1700s 1800s early 1900s there were large-scale bonders up in Dublin with huge government controlled warehouses who would feed uh, masses of whiskey out to the Commonwealth for example and then there were very very small-scale bonders all around Ireland in every kind of mid-sized town uh, those guys were very often just sort of mercantile owners. They would sell everything from tea, uh, port, sherry, uh, gun parts, bicycle parts, musical instruments, you sort of name it. They were also sort of pubs of sorts and they would take whatever casks they had lying around, bring them to their local distillery because in the 1800s you would have had a local distillery. They'd fill those up and then they would do custom blends for their customers essentially. So that kind of sort of customized uh, blending and bonding was very, very common in Ireland really until about the 1930s or so. It started to die out because, of course, the distilleries 
um, we didn't have a lot by the 1930s left and they began to cut the supply off to the bonders and um, to control the route to market themselves and effectively the entire practice died out really by the the very 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 early 1960s when Mitchell and Sons kind of stopped doing it and there hasn't been a bonder in Ireland since uh, when I founded the business I looked very closely at a grain to glass distillery on our family farm, um, but I discovered um, JJ Corey, who was a whiskey bonder in my local town in the 1800s. I didn't know what whiskey bonding was because it just hadn't been spoken of or, or talked about in the industry ever, really. So I started to investigate very deeply into like parliamentary archives, the British parliamentary archives that hold that kind of rec records for, for taxation of, of alcohol in particular. And I started to ask anecdotally to sort of the local people in my parish who'd be of an age who might remember that kind of thing. And I figured out, OK, well, that's really interesting. Whiskey bonders were an integral part of the Irish whiskey industry for a very, very long time. So rather than starting a grain to glass distillery, I decided instead I would bring back whiskey bonding. So I suppose what the the logo you have today um, of the JJ car with the with the shamrock in itself, uh, was that the original J.J. Corey logo himself or was that kind of a, an adaptation? Yes, it's, it, it's very close to the original logo. So interestingly enough, when I came back from, I used to actually live in Singapore and I moved back to set up an Irish whiskey company uh, because I, my husband forced me to, quite frankly. Uh, you can't live apart from your husband that long. And um, so he forced you back. Not so much. He forced you to set up an Irish whiskey company. Correct. The, the deal <laughs> was I would move back if I could set up an Irish whiskey company. And he may regret that deal now, but we're we are where we are. So um, I really was researching, uh, as anybody would, if you're going to set up a whiskey company. I started to research the heritage of whiskey in my parish and in my locality and in County Clare in general. Just like everywhere else in the country, there's a massive long history of legal and illegal distilling that would have gone on. And, you know, there was a there was a distillery very briefly um, in my local town of Kilrush. And I started to look at that very seriously for a while. I was going to buy a big the, the existing site and convert that, etc, etc. And then I fell upon this label on eBay of all places. And there was a local antique dealer. Um, uh, from Milltown Malby, which is quite close to me in County Clare, a guy from there who was selling these labels from the 1890s that said JJ Corey Kilrush Whiskey Bonder on them. So I bought a pile of them. They were about a euro each. And um, then I and I, then I called up the antique dealer and I said, Jesus, where did you get these? And he said, come on up and I'll tell you. So I went up to his um, uh, house, basically, up in Milltown Malby. And he has a shed out the back. He used to be a very prolific antique dealer. And what had happened was he was he was quite prolific in the 1980s of um, collecting antiques and, and selling them to America, quite frankly. And in 1983, he had been asked by the Brew family in Kilrush to come and um, sort of clear out the Cory shop, uh, which had been run by J.J. Cory's daughter, Bridie Cory, um, up until her, de her death in 1983. She had inherited that shop from J.J. Corey uh, in 1932 when he died and had kept it almost exactly as it was for that length of period of time. So he was brought in to assess the value kind of of what was in the shop. He ended up dismantling the interior of the shop um, piece by piece and he sold it to Bunratty Folk Park. 
So you can actually go and see the interiors of the shop. It was rebuilt down there. It's in wow. their main street. Yeah, it's very cool. We go there all the time when I have um, sort of journalists or, or distributors in town. And then he went up into the attic and he's, he found all this paper ephemera from the 1890s that JJ had put together. So it was everything from uh, labels, uh, wrapping paper, advertisements, um, notepads with te for, for telegrams because he had a telegram sort of outlet in there. And all of this amazing, very well-preserved paper ephemera in the attic. And it's a huge archive to pull from because, you know, I know what he sold, or not everything, but I know that he sold wine from Saint-Julien and Bordeaux, for example. I know that he sold what he branded Invalid Port, and I know he sold Sherry, and I know he sold Dandelion wine. And I know that because it's in this paper archive that I have from the from JJ's days. And I know that he sold whiskey called Cari Special Malt because I have the original labels. So I didn't want to kind of ape uh, the brand. You know, I didn't want to just say, right, we've been bonding whiskey since 1892. I just wanted to bring back a heritage brand as an homage to, J to JJ Cari, who was a pretty phenomenal entrepreneur for, for that time period. Um, and uh, just sort of bring it back but with a more modern kind of twist and to create whiskies that are more suited for modern whiskey consumers as well. So you don't think dandelion wine is going to take off again now? You never know. I've seen some weird, <laughs> weird and wonderful concoctions. Like there's, there's, there might be urinary issues with it. You know, it has certain side effects. So probably not. Ah, uh, okay. Well, one can hope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Live in hope. Live in hope. Exactly. Um, so I, I suppose w one of the things is we... I travel around and do this podcast, so you always kind of hear funny stories or intriguing stories of, of people trying to set up whiskey-related <clears throat> businesses across the country. Um, how is uh, setting up whiskey bonding in uh, Clare? How, uh, what, what kind of challenges are you facing? Uh, a, a perfect launch point if you want to talk about broadband again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I moved back to County Clare. I've never actually worked a day in my life in Ireland. I've worked a lot, believe me, but never, ever, ever in Ireland. So I was a quintessential expat, moved back after about 20 odd years to the farm and discovered not a huge amount had changed, which was which is great and charming and wonderful. But uh, not having very basic broadband was a massive, massive issue for, for us as a business. You know, we are, I'm an export focused business. We make very super premium sort of product that flies well globally. So I have to be able to Skype with my uh, distributors uh, in America or in Germany or in Australia or wherever, wherever it is. And that became impossible to do effectively. Um, there is no broadband in rural Ireland. Uh, that's the fundamental reality of the situation. It's a fundamental disgrace. Uh, I had to go and like literally create my own sort of satellite receivers and have them installed all over the farm because security is obviously an issue when you're storing 50,000 liters of whiskey out the back in the field. Uh, you have to ensure that you know there's eyes on it at all time. So there are there were pretty significant kind of technical challenges just around setting up a business in rural Ireland and it's one of the reasons that I would like to see kind of a lot more support around um, us rural businesses that are setting up outside of Dublin on the craft spirits kind of side of things. It's a lot harder for us to do what we're doing once we're outside of the pale. Uh, we don't have 
proper broadband, you know, we don't have proper services. It's very difficult for us to to just do the day-to-day business if you can't Skype somebody in America, you know. So there needs to be a little bit more thought put and support put around those rural businesses that are creating um, jobs in these areas that have effectively been forgotten for a very long time. Um, so rural broadband was a bit of an issue. Getting, you know, we're the first bonded warehouse of this kind in a very, very, very long time, right? There's not a lot of bonded warehouses in Ireland, as you know, okay? And a lot of the distilleries that are setting up are having issues storing their own whiskey because of the difficulty in procuring a bond. Uh, I am not kidding you when I tell you I have to, to secure my bond with the revenue. I have signed over the rights to my house, my car, and my horse because those are the only assets that I own and my house, my horse and my car will be sold off in the event that my bond is called by the revenue. Now, not a lot of people will put up their personal assets for, for their, for their whiskey company. I felt comfortable enough doing that because I feel, I don't think my whiskey, the bond is going to get called, but that level of, of, um, sort of strange bureaucracy that, that hasn't changed since the 1800s made it very difficult to navigate the system you know in scotland if you want to have a bonded warehouse you simply have an insurance policy so that if the revenue calls on the bond the the insurance policy pays out in ireland that does not fly you must of course have an insurance policy but you must also present evidence to the to the revenue that you're good for the money in seven days or whatever and that's legislation that's 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 from the 1890s, basically 1840s, effectively. So the legislation in Ireland hasn't moved on since those times. It's not going to move any faster. Public bodies don't move that fast. So that's been pretty hilarious, sort of like dragging out statues from the 1800s and waving them at people and, and trying to work around them. But it also makes you very creative and, and you, you know... I was very single-minded about doing this and absolutely nothing was going to stop me. So I figured out a way to make it happen. Fair enough. I love the idea of you waving 1800s literature at people um, to get your, get your bond in place. Yeah. Well, um, in many cases, like, I, you know, I, people, there's no, there's no, nobody has done what I, this exactly the way I've done it in living memory. There's no institutional memory around it. You know, my bondsman um, actually was one or two bondsmen in Ireland. And my bondsman said that he had to talk to his grandfather, who was also a bondsman, to, to figure out how to do, how to how to cover me, essentially, because it's just not something that had been done in a very, very long time. So, yeah, it's interesting. Thank God his grandfather was still alive. I know, I know. <laughs> we'd be in trouble if he wasn't. <laughs> Um, and, and, well, yeah, lucky there was that, that institutional memory, or non-institutional, living memory, I suppose, to do that um and then you know i suppose one of the one of the things if anyone follows you on social media you'll see you rely a lot on uh local community health as well you know a lot of times it's it's you get stuck in the mud and it's it's lo- thankful that somebody nearby has a, a tractor or a high torque truck trucker van to help you out so there's a lot of that kind of community aspect there is a huge amount yes and i'm very fortunate in that regard like the 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 nice thing is, is that like, you know, I'm, I'm a, I was born on a farm, right? And I, I'm now living on a farm again. And when you live in a small rural community, your neighbors are everything. You live and die by your neighbors. And we're a small enough business at this juncture, you know, we haven't kicked into full production on site yet. 
So we don't have a lot of employees on site as yet. But you know, we've just installed a blending room um, and we had a number of very large scale tanks arrive from China. And the person that I call when a, when a random container arrives with weirdly packed tanks is my local agricultural contractor, right? Who's also my cousin, who's also my neighbor, who I've known my whole life, right? And they will figure out a way, hell or high water, to get those tanks out of a container. Uh, and the same goes for um, just sort of random stuff around the farm. Like at the moment now, while I'm here in Singapore, the neighbors are actually putting corrugated sheeting onto the blending room. Um, it's not exactly voluntary labor, but it's just this sort of community spirit that people come together to make things happen in a in a very kind of um, agricultural farming sort of way. Like, you know, the way that we operate, it's not, um, we use the resources that we have around us, you know. So some of the filtration systems that we use, you know, are derived from... Um, uh, dairy, dairy products yeah. yeah so you know my disgorgement tank is 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 my uncle's old um bulk tank you know de- like stainless steel bulk, t- bulk tank that we're that we're mm-hmm. using it as a disgorgement tank we've re, re- we we've kind of upcycled it if you like and made a few adjustments but i look around the the the, the community and i go okay who's who's getting rid of this who's getting rid of that you know everything in the dairy in the dairy industry is obviously food grade you know and there's a really nice kind of lovely sort of segue then into the whiskey industry because um we can be quite smart about what we're doing we don't have to spend the most money we just have to be kind of the 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 cleverest about um the kind of stuff that we're using and 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 reusing as well yeah a lot of a lot of uh you know the pumps and the filters and the tanks and whatnot would be very very homogeneous or, or interchangeable between dairy. Um, I know when, in a previous episode when we spoke to um, Michael Walsh from Dingle, he said the exact same thing. He was around dairy his entire life. So pretty much all, he was familiar with the distillery before he ever got to a distillery. Yeah. Um, so as what what really was was the, the driving factor that, that changed your mind from opening, I'm opening a distillery in Kilrush to I'm opening a Bonders in Kilrush? Was it... Was it simply finding the kind of heritage note or was there, a, you know, was it, was it, I suppose there's, there's different challenges to it? Kind of what, what drove that? It was absolutely 100% the heritage piece, right? I, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I think I was sitting in the, in the public li- or the British public library where all of the old revenue documentation from the 1800s is stored. And I was reading through these sort of parliamentary debates that had gone on about whiskey bonding in the 1800s. In Ireland, you know, and letters from the Lord Mayor of Dublin to, to Westminster and, and debates that have gone on in Westminster and that sort of stuff. And I just realized, my God, whiskey bonding has effectively been written out of our, our culture and our heritage in terms of the whiskey industry. And I just felt that's not right. You know, there's been a narrative that had been told about Irish whiskey for a very, very long time. Um, that maybe isn't exactly 100% accurate. Maybe it's like 90% accurate, I think. And I just felt that boat needed to be righted. You know, I think um, there's 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 a beauty and an art in, in maturation and a beauty and, and a science and a beauty and an art in blending as well. And the Irish whiskey industry doesn't tend to focus on that necessarily. And I wanted to kind of draw a little bit of focus, you know, you know, you know, away from from the normal narrative onto something else, because ultimately 
I have a love for this category that, I, and I genuinely do. Like I've given up everything, uh, a very, very well-paying job at a multinational drinks company to do this. You know, to for a very low-paying job with no broadband, basically, you know, on a farm, uh, to do this because I believe in the category, and for this category to succeed, we have to have variance and we have to have variety and we have to have different stories, and. For me, bringing back a lost part of heritage uh, for, for the Irish whiskey industry is 100% the legacy that I leave on the world. Like, I don't have kids. I have a lovely horse and a nice dog. Don't have kids, but my legacy in the world, I hope, would, you know, is the fact that we were the first to sort of bring back whiskey bonding during this wonderful time period of resurgence of the Irish, Irish whiskey industry. So 100% it was the heritage piece. Okay, and I mean, like you know, some people listening, when when saying bonders, you know, might might think of the the Gilbys or the said Mitchells or even uh, Burks from well, I suppose Dublin, Liverpool, forward slash you know Long Island, New York. Um, but what what in in your mind, you know, for for those listening, what what's the the key difference between a bonder and an independent bottler? Because you know, I say there's a lot of people out there. Who, who wouldn't know the difference nor someone would even you know think that there you know there was any difference at all so what, yeah what's your thoughts on that i think it's a really important point because uh irish whiskey bonding has to stand for something all right so there are distillers who distill there are independent bottlers who buy in whiskey and bottle it very simply and sell it on and then there are bonders so if you look at the, the original model of whiskey bonding, the smaller scale whiskey bonding that would have gone on in Ireland in the 1800s, you know, those guys were picking casks and picking spirit, putting them together and then custom blending for their customers, right? So if you were the Vandalore family in Kilrush, you had a household blend at JJ Carries, for example, you went in and you ordered it. You know, what I think is that modern whiskey bonding has to stand for something from a qualitative standpoint, really, really very well defined. And the, the definition that I've put forward and I'm lobbying for to be upheld long, long term would be that a whiskey bonder um, uh, purchases raw spirit, for example, at the new make stage, most certainly, uh, and they and they purchase empty casks themselves so you're sourcing your own casks you're sourcing your own spirit you're putting those two together the way that we do that is it's based on flavor profile of new make and and the casks that we're selecting you're putting them into your own bonded warehouse not somebody else's not 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 a commercial bonded warehouse in the middle of the country your own bonded warehouse for which you own a bond because that's the barrier to entry there uh, this means that you have 100% control then over the maturation conditions, right? So my bonded warehouse has a clay floor so I can control humidity. I put windows in it so that I'm keeping the thermal energy up and keeping the temperature up. It's insulated. Um, I have control over those maturation conditions. I have ultimate control and, and 24 hour, 365 day a year access to my casks. Um, that's important. Um, I think then as well, you should be blending it yourself. Uh, ideally in your own facility, but it, it, you, you know, rather than sending it off down to a commercial bottler, you should be in charge of the disgorgement and the blending process and, and the bottling and all of it. So effectively, from the moment that the whiskey comes, spirit comes off the still until it's bottled and shipped, you need to be shepherding that whiskey all the way along, because that means you have the full control in terms of the quality of that whiskey all the way along. 
you know, you may not be in control of the distillation process. You're probably going to have a hand in it in terms of mash bills and in terms of deciding what you want. But for whiskey bonding to mean anything, you must be in control of everything from, from that point to sort of the end point, essentially. I'm trying to get us into that place. Now, it's going to take me a while. Technically, then, by that definition, I'm not a whiskey bonder, right? It's great to create a definition that you don't slip into right yet. Yeah, but but, <laughs> but, but I think that, but that's the point. Like, it's the stretch, you know? Mm -hmm. it, you, I'm stretching, and I, I I didn't have to build a, 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 a blending room, right? I didn't have to do that. I could have just bought whiskey from distilleries in casks, casks that I know nothing about mm -hmm. that could have come from anywhere. I don't do that. I, I go all over the place. I go as close to the distillery source as possible buying casks that have specific flavor profiles that I like that I want to match to my spirit. So I think I think it has to be defined. Uh, and I think um, it's something that I'm lobbying the Department of Agriculture in relation to. And I, I will continue to lobby the, the Department of Agriculture in relation to. Um, you know, you can't call yourself a distiller if you don't have a distillery. You should not be able to call yourself a bonder if you do not have a bond minimum under your own name. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good definition. It absolutely does. And it's really hard to get a bond. So it means yeah. that there's a barrier and there should be a barrier to entry. Like there has to be a barrier to entry. So I think you're not a bonder if you don't have a bond, very simply. You're, you're an independent bottler if you're buying in stuff and putting it in a commercial warehouse and, and sending it out. And good, we need it. We also need independent bottlers because mm -hmm. independent bottling is a very, another very vital part of the industry that we absolutely need. Um, but it, but, but the heritage element around whiskey bonding needs to be protected and needs to stand for something even, even more than it stood for perhaps in in the eighteen hundreds. Uh, and we need to hold the line on that quality level as the as the category grows. And as as the category does grow, and you know more and more distilleries come online, what I suppose, what does that mean for you as a as a bonder? Obviously, it's a you know greater or more widely uh, available access to stock, but does it award other opportunities? You know, perhaps working with smaller guys to do more bespoke things or. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about the next couple of years. Like the nicest thing about the industry is just the lads like you know the 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 people in it like you don't get it if you're if you're an independent distiller or an independent person in the industry by and large not a hundred percent but by and large you don't get into it if you don't love it and there's a beautiful commonality between us all and that we all have a real serious love and passion for for what we do and that binds you immediately uh, and you and you can tell the people that have that in the industry so one of the fa my favorite piece, pieces about being a bonder is certainly sourcing casks is tremendously interesting, but also building relationships with the new guys around the country that are that are starting up and are doing really, really fundamentally interesting things. So my goal is to build a, a library of Irish whiskey flavors from all over the country. Right. That's going to take me a decade and long, long, long term. I'll be blending whiskeys from all over the country with different flavor profiles and that will be great. Um, but in the interim, yeah, we, we're, we're looking very closely at working some with some really, really much smaller guys and kind of not renting a still, but just being very dictatorial, if you like, about what's going in it and what's happening <laughs> and renting a bit of time off the lads mm -hmm. and um, creating spirit that's a bit more bespoke to ourselves. You know, the world is our oyster in, that, in relation to that, but it's such early days. We kind of have to see how it, how it plays out. 
but it's a hell of a lot of fun like go, traveling around and seeing all of all of the amazingly different and unique uh, approaches that everybody has in the industry on the on the much much smaller scale right now and meeting up you know the the cast of characters as well and building relationships with them is, is really fun that's, that's always good news yeah is there is there to, to perhaps put you on the spot a little bit is there one distillery at the moment that you're you're excited about perhaps their spirit or their vision or or just the people to work with or um there's a lot of them like i love the lads up at old carrick mill they haven't started distilling yet they're really interested they're really really interesting anybody tiny i'm kind of down with anybody tiny you know, I, I'm I'm for the underdog, you know, a hundred percent for the underdog in any 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 day of the week. I don't everybody's doing exciting stuff right now. Like that's the nice thing. Like there there nobody's doing stupid stuff at the moment from a distillation standpoint. Like everybody's got their own kind of twist on it. Like I love what Peter's doing down in Waterford. It's really super interesting. The Clonic Kilty guys have a good kind of gig going on. Um, Waterford Distillery is really interesting, but they're not going to sell a drop of whiskey ever. I don't think, like may, maybe in about a, maybe about a decade. I think that piece is absolutely kind of fascinating. Um, everybody's doing great stuff, you know. They're, they're, it, it's 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 a it's it's a wonderful thing to watch, even in the last three or four years, to see all these guys coming out and creating their visions and, and and just making it happen as as a whiskey entrepreneur myself and I don't even have a distillery it's been damn hard to get to this point so I have the greatest respect and admiration for anybody who's managed to 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 do the entire distillery piece and put their own stamp personal kind of stamp on it mm, absolutely there are some absolutely fantastic uh, small and big guys out there at the moment and um, one thing that I remember speaking to you a while ago about just when it was kind of the craft alcohol bill or the alcohol bill in the Irish Parliament, um, there were, for some weird license reasons, you were going to create gin like one day a year uh, to be a, a quote unquote <laughs> producer. Um, is that is that still in the the pipeline? Or? Yeah, yeah, it is. So, so I had to approach again. This is this whole eighteen forties statutes thing. So before the craft drinks bill was invented, I was actually trying to get a bog license because I have a bog on the farm, right? And a bog license is a, is, a, is a statute in the revenue books from the 1840s that means that you can actually sell alcohol in a bog, basically, uh, without a full <laughs> license, right? And it's from the 1840s and it's still, you can Google it's, it, it's yeah. on the revenue website. And it's never been repealed, right? It's never been repealed and it costs 500 euros. And I said, right, and I went and I, I petitioned my local politician and then I petitioned the Minister for Energy because I wanted a bog license because I'm not paying 80 grand for a license, right? Yeah. And I, I didn't get a bog license, sadly. But anyway, then the, the craft drinks bill came in. And, you know, the craft drinks bill does not cover a lot of us. It doesn't cover mead makers. It doesn't cover me because I'm not distilling on site, even though I did petition the IWA to, how to include it. Didn't work out. Um, so I can't sell my own whiskey on site because I only blend it. I merely mature it and blend it on site and I don't distill it. So technically I can't do that. So you don't fall under the current remit of the... I don't fall under it, uh, which is a bit of an issue, as you can imagine. However, I can get a compounder's license and make and make compound gin and I can sell that. So I think that I you know I am going to open for very, 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 very small scale tours this year, like uh, bespoke 
by appointment only tours for a maximum of 10 or 12 people effectively. I, I do need to be able to commercialize that in some way. So I'm getting a compounder's license and I'm going to make really nice compound gin, you know, not with uh, essences. I'm going to make it with actual macerated botanicals. I have the blending room now. I, I have the capacity to do that. It's going to be called pig's elbow because that's what, what, what there's a little, there's a little kind of turn in my village called pig's elbow and the gin is going to be called pig's elbow. And I'm gonna make it like maybe once or twice a year and sell it at the cellar door, if you like, just so that I have something that I can commercialize with. And again, it's just a bit of a workaround because um, as a bonder and blender, unfortunately right now, I, I still can't sell my product on site. Mm. Can I ask, um, I'm intrigued now because I've never heard of this bog license. What, was there a reason you didn't get the bog license? Yeah, so the reason I didn't get the bog license, the, <laughs> and, and I really tried to get the bog license, the reason I didn't get the bog license is that it does, even though it still exists on the revenue website, um, it used to be under the remit of the Minister for Jobs, effectively, the Enterprise and Jobs, okay? And then, then uh, for whatever reason, it, it, it transferred into the remit of the Minister for Energy, because it's a bog, I guess, I don't really know. And then they were trying to remove it from the statute books but it takes so long to remove it from the statute books. I was applying for it as they were removing it. And there was kind of a lot, a lag basically. And then um, the craft drinks bill came in anyway, and I thought that it would cover me, but it didn't. So I kind of let it go. Um, so yeah, that's the only reason, but you never know. I might, I might, if I might bring it up again, like I was going to build a little shebeen in the bog and sell from there. And may maybe it's not completely abandoned. We'll see how the tourism piece goes for us this year. Just love the idea of you setting up a little hidden bar in, in the bog. Yeah, it was going to be like speakeasy in the bog. It's going to be awesome. The bog is really cool as well. Like it's got heather and everything and it's really nice down there. Oh, I look forward to uh, the JJ Curry Shabin at some point. That, that's come a... to my bog. You're all invited <laughs> to my bog anytime. Please come to my bog. We can have bog snorkeling championships. <laughs> we can. We can. Um, so I suppose if we're taking the, the JJ Curry message to the world, what does what your, your global footprint look like right now? Because I know that you have um, two uh, female ambassadors uh, across the world and you also do have some male employees for... <laughs> we are a very equal opportunity employer i'd just like to get that on the record um but we are a very female focused not female focused company but there's a lot of women in the company uh, that that may or may not be by design uh, but you know we have uh, brand ambassador blaze out in the us and she covers about seven states in the us we have distribution out there and then we just signed a big distribution deal with Axiom Brands in the UK. And that just kicked in in January there. And we have a full-time brand ambassador, Neve, uh, who's out in the UK and she services Germany a little bit as well. So last year for us, you know, we really only launched in, we've only been trading for about a year in reality. So we focused very squarely on the US to begin with. And um, we, you know, we've got basic distribution now in seven states out there and we're just working it effectively. It's the US is a behemoth and you have to, it's very, very hard work. So that was a big focus for kind of year one. Um, the, the UK deal was a big one for us. We're in Germany. We'll start to expand out now into additional states across Europe this year. Mm. We did our first shipments to Japan there just before Christmas. It looks like Singapore is going to be a go, and I hope to open Hong Kong. 
and then we'll look at a footprint in South Africa and Australia and we're kind of done then for a while you know we I only go to markets where the big guys have done the category work and and there are people in market who understand the whiskey Irish whiskey category as a whole Ours is a super premium product. The starting price is about 80 euros. So there's, a, you know, you need, you're not going to just buy an 80 euros. It's, it's not an impulse buy. It is not an impulse buy. You need to sort of have a little bit of knowledge around Irish whiskey to kind of understand, okay, well, I want to kind of trade up and out, basically. We're not a shot whiskey. You know, this is a connoisseur's whiskey, effectively. So, so for us, it's those markets that there is that kind of knowledge there and people are into their whiskey. We're a whiskey drinker's whiskey, you know, fundamentally like the, and, and that's, that's very, very, um, we did that on purpose. You know, I love my whiskey myself personally. I want to make whiskey that whiskey drinkers, you know, are really into and like talk about and, and discuss the, the nuances and the flavors and the, and the, um, the complexity of our blends are, are, are pretty insane. Actually, you know, the, the we're doing partial disgorgements when we're blending to get like elements of flavor coming out oh and my god that your revenue officer must hate yeah you. <laughs> was, was, i had to invent a bucket to, i literally had to like invent a bucket and show it to the revenue and say please can i use this bucket that to partially disgorge my sherry cask because nobody does partial disgorgements really no it's not a thing but it and, is with us yeah no absolutely but how did how did you get revenue to agree to Bucket disgorge. We invented a bucket. I had to like they. You're not allowed to really partially disgorge, because I don't know why. I I actually I, I don't know why. I it's I, I don't understand why. But you're not. So we had to get a bucket and then put gradients on it, literage gradients on it that were um gauged properly, if you like, and then go to the revenue and say, okay, we're going to take ten liters of this sherry cask. And this is the bucket that we're going to use to measure it. Are you okay with that? And they were. God bless them. Thank God. But um, amazing. Yeah. How you got that past? <laughs> well, I think. I mean, I think it's really important. Like for somebody like me who does our, our we, we do what I call precision blending, and like we every single cast that we have. And remember, I'm dealing in casks. You know, I'm not dealing in 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 IBCs or stuff like that. Yeah. Every cask has a different flavor. Mm -hmm. Every cask we have is classified into a flavor block. We have about 18 flavor blocks. If I want to make the Gale, our first product, it's a fruity fruit bomb Irish whiskey. I have to pull from, there's eight flavor blocks that I pull from within uh, the, the components that we have. All of those are nuanced and graded. Sometimes I don't want all of a, all of a particular sherry cask. I want like, you know, a few liters of it and a few liters of another one. You know, I'm not just disgorging and dumping casks. I am blending on flavors, you know, on individualized single cask flavors is, is how we look at it. So buckets are vital to my business operation, quite frankly. I'm just surprised you got revenue to agree to it. It sounds like the least Irish revenue decision or the least likely Irish revenue Please decision. Please do not bring revenue down on my head, Matt. I won't. I won't. No, I'm just... I Kudos. It's all above board. Everything is very above board. I just, I'm just saying that I'm just amazed that you managed to pull that off. Like, am I hat tipping to you for that? Yeah, the global footprint then is uh, is expanding. You know, I think um, we we go to places where the Irish whiskey category is in, in existence, and there are consumers who are willing to 
uh, move into our super premium, ultra premium sort of category. That's important for us. We're growing. We have, you know, we now have four people in the team in total. So we have Blaze and Neve, our two brand ambassadors out in the world. And then we have a, an Irish logistics and sales manager, Eric, who's on the ground. And then there's me. Um, we'll be expanding further uh, this year. You know, it's very important for us to have boots on the ground. So I'm hoping perhaps to put somebody out in Asia, maybe not full-time, but part-time. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll just expand out gradually as we go. And, and the most important thing for us at the moment is people on the ground telling the story and, and uh, getting the message out there. It's quite amazing to year one have two brand ambassadors on out in the world you know that's a that's quite a quite an achievement i'd say well it's it's possible very very simply because of board bia and their their eop program you know there it is i just believe because i don't have a distillery i do not have to have a lot of staff on the ground okay current even now with the blending room we're not blending 24 7 you know we're blending in batches so I don't need a full staff of people. So all of my resources then can go to staff out there telling the story. And that's just another sort of, it's another nice advantage to being a whiskey bonder than a whiskey distiller. Um, our message is, you know, we make the whiskey and then we get it out there and I can put my resources out in the world rather than having them back in Ireland. And that's been a really great advantage for us. And the Board B EOP program has allowed us to do that. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to hear that the, the global footprint is growing. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of uh, insight into what whiskies you have currently? Yeah, we have some pretty exciting stuff going on. So um, we currently have two sort of com commercial, if you like, whiskies that are, that are on the market. When I say commercial, I mean general release. So we have the Gale, which was our first blend, effectively, a super premium blend of um i'm gonna tell you what's in it because i want to even though i'm not allowed to so it's five percent 25 year old 27.5 percent 11 year old 27.5 percent 15 year old malt so it's 60 percent malt uh, and then the remainder is 40 percent seven year old grain so super premium uh it, by that i mean um a very sort of considered blend effectively and one with quite mature whiskies in it i wanted to sort of look at the irish blend and elevate it because it, it doesn't get a lot of love, you know, historically. Scotch blends would, they're quite well respected, but I wanted to make something uh, using the amazing whiskey stocks that we have that, that could really stand up as a well-defined, recognizable, juicy fruit bomb Irish whiskey. Um, we did batch one there. We're just about out of it now. We're moving into batch two. It will be precisely the same blend. Everything will be two years older, uh, but it'll be, in the wheelhouse, you know, from a flavor standpoint of what yeah. we did before. We don't do consistency. I don't make the same whiskey all the time. I can't. I have whiskey, living whiskey in casks. That whiskey changes every year. It changes all the time. So we have a, um, a flavor profile that we're working towards or like a house style that we're working towards, but it's still in development because we're so young. Uh, second whiskey that we have on general release is the Flintlock and the Flintlock was very simply a first crack at a single malt and um, Flintlock, uh, it was 16 year old, it was just three casts again that we, we picked individually based on their flavour profile and put them together because we felt that it would work quite well. Uh, it did. Uh, it won Best Irish Single Malt. <laughs> it did, to say the least. It yeah. did, yeah. <laughs> it won Best Irish Single Malt in the Irish Whiskey Awards um, this year, uh, over 13 years old. 
and it's pretty much sold out now. Um, we just did a special label for it for the US and sent it off there this week. We will do a flintlock too. I just wanted to have an experiment um, with the malt to see, to put a toe on it and we'll do more, we'll do more single malt releases in that regard. We've started to do what are known as bonders blends. And this is quite interesting because again, this is a heritage element of, of um, whiskey bonding. You know, as I said, JJ Corey would have done customized individual blends for families in Kilrush. You know, the Vandalers had their own house blend, etc. We've just started to do that now for customers. And by customers, I mean um, restaurants, hotels, etc., etc. So it's called the Bonders Blend Program. And we do it for kind of quite high-end customers, like luxury hotels and that sort of thing. And we'll do a bottling of 200 bottles um, of a particular individualized blend that's one-off, effectively. And it's it's packaged under the JJ Kari name, but it, it's customized for those, for those people. Um, that's really fun for us because, again, it's it's really kind of playing on the heritage of whiskey bonding and, and bringing back into into um, and it, doing it in a modern way. We've done a few of those. We've done one for a local hotel called the Armada for their 50th anniversary. We did one for a very special event in Germany as well. And we have four of them lined up now for the UK. Um, uh, in the coming months for pretty well known kind of accounts in the UK. Uh, because the blending room is coming online. So that's a really sort of interesting um, piece for... Sorry. Jesus. It's amazing. We're on the 20th floor of a Tokyo hotel, and there seems to be what can only really be described as a cherry picker coming from the roof. <laughs> which, which I think is... he's after some flintlock. I think that's his <laughs> I think he's washing the window, is he? he? He could be. I'm not entirely sure, but it was very confusing and very surprising when the windows <laughs> in our room just started creaking. Um, there he goes. Yeah. Oh, what? See, the funny thing is this makes for, this, this makes for terrible radio. Terrible radio. And... <laughs> um, well, that was that was the most surprising thing that's happened today. And yeah. oh, he's on kind of a cable car coming from he the is. roof. Yes. Oh, okay. Um. So that was a very strange interlude. Uh, I'll probably keep that in the recording. Yeah, I mean, you should. <laughs> there he goes. Um. So I mean, that's that's absolutely brilliant that you're you're going and doing those those individualized blends. I know. Uh, I presume you'll have kind of a. I've I, I've seen the Armada release, and I, I, it has kind of a. Is a kind of a purple or a blue label, uh, so it's recognisably JJ Corey, but recognisably not the cores, if that makes sense. Yes, so that's that. That's what we do. So basically, that that colour now will only ever be issued for the Armada. That's it. So once we use a colourway, it goes to that customer and it's theirs forever and ever and ever. It's still very JJ Corey. It's got our shamrock. It's got everything. There's customizable bits. That's sort of really important. Um, and we don't do it for everybody, you know, I, I do, I do it for, you know, I, we, we just don't do it for everybody. I can't, I don't have that much stock. It's for kind of our higher end kind of customers that, that are, that love their whiskey and will get behind it, you know, mm. um, the other products that we have in development, we have some really fun, fun, what I call fun anyway, uh, cast finishes in the works. We're just about to go live with the battalion breaking news. You heard it here first. The Battalion is a uh, whiskey that I've been working on since last September, and it's last August, I should say. And the Battalion is named after um, the Battalion San Patricos, 
which was a group of Irish men who defected from the uh, American army uh, during the, the Mexican War of Independence, basically, and they went to work to, to fight on the Mexican side. And they'd be quite well known down in Mexico because um, they fought very bravely. They were quite savage against the Americans because they had been treated very badly themselves in the in the American army. So uh, I've named it JJ Carr, the battalion. And what we did was we took some malts, 16 year old malts, and we took some grain, uh, 10 year old grain. We put them in a mix of tequila, ex-tequila casks and ex-mezcal casks. And we started to play around with the finish. And we've just now landed on a blend of two of those. We'll be releasing that uh, in time for Cinco de Mayo. Um, it's a very interesting whiskey. It's just a bit of fun. Um, the reason that I wanted to do it is because you're not allowed to do it in scotch, effectively. Yeah, they, they tried and they, they couldn't. You know, whilst I don't 100% agree with everything in the Irish whiskey technical file, it does give us some good leeway for innovation. And I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to sort of push the boat out on that and and um, and experiment a bit. There are these really interesting agave characteristics that are coming through on the whiskey, which is what we wanted to be very careful to preserve. Um, we had no idea how it was going to turn out. It's the best way to describe it is that it's it's a fascinating whiskey and it's not something that people are going to have, you know, have uh, experienced before necessarily. Mm -hmm. It'll be a very limited release because it's it's a pure experimentation. If people really like it, we'll do a lot more of it. Um, I'll go down to Mexico and I'll find, you know, if, if we're really going to go for it, I'll go down to Mexico and uh, work directly with sort of mezcal and tequila producers. Um, these casks I got from uh, a cooperage that I actually work up and work with up in Maine specifically because they were experimental. Um, it's a fascinating whiskey. It's really, really interesting. It's a good bit of fun. And we hope to do this kind of thing a lot more in the future. Like I, I've tracked down some great casks with flavor profiles that I absolutely love. So we'll be playing around a lot with that in the future and doing lots of small releases. Um, but we'll continue to come out with the traditional whiskies as well. The Flintlocks, the Gales, um, you know, that's always going to be our core. But we're always going to be experimenting with a bit of mad stuff here and there just to sort of see how it hits and to push the, push the boat out on, um, you know, on maturation and, and finishing, which is really where our speciality lies. And so is it a, it's a blend of, um, it's a blended whiskey that's in you took literally both tequila and mezcal casks and blend them together. That's correct. Yes. We, so initially I didn't know, and this is the beauty of it. Like you don't know when you start to finish a whiskey, what's going to happen, particularly if it hasn't been done before. So initially I thought I was just going to have a, a mezcal finish or a tequila finish. And then we started to play around with it. And again, for us, blending has to become very important because we are bonders. You know, we need to ensure that we're, 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 we're affecting the end product in a more significant way. And we started to play around with blends and it, and it started to become even more interesting. You get those agave notes from the, the tequila finish and you get those kind of mesquite kind of uh, smoky, weird notes from the mezcal, but not too much. But it's still definably Irish whiskey. It's just that it has this really, really interesting uh, something else going on that's a flavor that maybe we're not massively familiar with. I'm, a, I'm also like... Uh, I take a lot of inspiration from from kind of what my travels as well. I love mezcal. I love tequila. They're beautifully produced products with the same kind of ethos as Irish whiskey. They're agricultural. They're small scale. They're rural. So it's a really nice fit. 
So as we're sitting here in Japan, are we going to be keeping an eye out for any sochu barrels or something when we're <laughs> coming back? Well, I'm, I'm taking a little trip to a distillery when this, you know, after this, uh, after today is open for a little bit of inspiration. I'm I'm having a look at Mizunara casks, although I've been severely advised against them. Um, but I wouldn't, you know, you might be able to see a bit of Japanese influence coming through in a few years. You never know. Always good to have a Japanese importer as well. So, you know. Uh, Helps exactly. Excited, Helps. excited to see. Excited to see what uh, what comes down the line. So I suppose um, it's kind of a, a, a kind of a natural end, I suppose here. And um, if if there was one thing you wanted to kind of leave with people, um, with JJ Carey, something perhaps you love about the bonding or anything like that, what would you what would you like to leave people with? What that message? I think the key message is that um, there are tremendous independent whiskies in general coming out of Ireland at the moment. And, you know, there's also a lot of chat about the fact that a lot of the whiskey is sourced and a lot of the whiskey is, is the same, etc., etc. You know, I think people need to take a step back and realize that that's a very normal element of the whiskey industry anywhere you go. You know, um, the beauty of whiskey is that it comes in many, many flavors. It comes in many forms. The, the effect that the cask has on the whiskey means that you can have thousands of nuances from a single distillation after a couple of years of maturation. So you can do pretty amazing things with a standardized, you know, stock of whiskey. Uh, we're trying to prove that by very, very consciously focusing on that precision blending at the moment and, and what we're doing. Um, you know, we need patience in the industry for, for the next few years whilst we find our feet and whilst we mature. Um, we're all going to get there. We're all headed in the right direction in terms of um, uh, holding the line on quality. And I think even more so now holding the line on transparency as well. Um, the key sort of message from, from us really is that, you know, we're making whiskey from the same stocks that everybody else is doing. We're doing it 100% transparently, but we're still managing to make very unique uh, whiskies um, that we hope that whiskey folks will love, really. And also, we're having a hell of a lot of fun while we're doing it as well. <laughs> it's a good industry to be in. Yes. Um, so if people wanted to uh, find you guys on social media, what handle should they be looking up? So Instagram and Twitter is at Whiskeygate with an E, because there's an E in Irish whiskey most of the time. And an E in Gate. And there is an E in Gate. <laughs> uh, so it's at Whiskeygate for Twitter and Instagram. And then on Facebook, we're JJ Curry Whiskey. Fantastic. Um, and for anyone out there who's been enjoying these podcasts, make sure to click subscribe and share with all of your whiskey loving friends out there. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at potstill underscore. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash potstill. Or as always, you can uh, find us at potstill.com. So Louise, thank you so much for giving me your time today and for uh, talking to us in our lovely uh, Tokyo surrounds. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Time for sushi. Time for sushi. Bye-bye.